Lolita. 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 <laughs> How did they ever make a movie of Lolita? How did they ever make a movie of Lolita? Hello, and welcome to the Great American Novel Podcast. I'm Kirk Kernut. And I'm Scott Yarbrough. And on this episode, we are talking about what is likely the most controversial of the Great American Novels that we have or probably will ever do. And Scott, do you want to tell us what that particular title is? The book is Lolita by the... Russian immigrate to the United States, Vladimir Nabokov. And it is the story of a, well, for lack of a better term, a pedophile who likes to groom adolescent girls to be ready for a sexual conquest and who becomes fixated with a young woman who's in the house where he becomes a lodger after he moves to the United States. And he starts devising a way to become her stepfather as a, and have control of her as a way of having access to her and things go on from there. So obviously we need to tread lightly here when we talk about a book that is about pedophilia and one of the I think historical issues that's fascinating to study about Lolita is the way that that character type has entered not only America but global popular cult uh, culture. And in a way that I think most commentators today would say is the 100 degree, 80 degree opposite of what its author or creator uh, wanted us to view that character type as. Before we get into the book, though, I want to ha- ask you <laughs> a quick question, Scott, and that is, how do you pronounce Nabokov's name? My belief is you're supposed to pronounce it Nabokov, and I'll tell you why I think that. One of my professors had his PhD from Cornell. This is, in fact, the same professor who taught me the novel as a, an undergraduate. And then when I took him in a different American novel class, we did it again in graduate school at Florida State. A guy named Doug Fowler, who went to Cornell a little bit just after Nabokov had retired, but that's how he pronounced it. So I am putting my faith with one of Cornell PhD instead of Sting, who did teach, <laughs> who did teach high school English, and who did write a story about the attraction between himself and, or I should say, wrote a song about himself and the seeming attraction with one of the high school girls in his class during his days of teaching as Gordon Sumner. And a perfect example of, I think, uh, one of the interpretations of Lita, Lolita that gets that character wrong. Yes. I did look it up because I realized, thanks to that great British poet Sting, I have probably been mispronouncing it, tending to put the stress on Nabokov. But I looked it up, and he said the emphasis is on the middle syllable, and it can be either a hard O or a soft O. The soft O is his per- preference. So I guess it's supposed to be Nabokov. Nabokov. Oh. 
Okay. Neb- Nebukov. Uh, the O is supposed to sound like Nickabacher. Okay. Nabokov. Okay. Nabokov. Okay. You can take some of those out. <laughs> yeah. And I think we're just going to finally say we don't care. Yeah. Uh, we, we all we know go. who we're talking about, and it'll be fine. And we are sorry that we are mispronouncing his name, but you and I both have names that are frequently in some ways, and we don't mean the Scott and Kirk part, but are either misspelled or mispronounced. So exactly. He can live with it as well. Ours have been butchered into infinity at different points. Anyway, Lolita has a fascinating publication history, a backstory to it. Let's start off with a little bit about why we think this book has been so totally misinterpreted in the almost 64 years since it was published. And uh, we should state that we are not the only people that have this position. There is a huge body of scholarship that talks about how troubling pop culture assimilations of Lolita have been. And the issue was brought to the forefront, I think, probably about a year ago with what I would consider the best literary podcast uh, that is out there right now, which is not by an academic, which is probably explains why it's the best, <laughs> but it, it's Jamie Loftus's the, the Lolita podcast. So Scott, tell us a little bit about the controversy surrounding the sort of how pop culture has treated the character. You know, if it weren't for that Lolita podcast and the way it has kind of brought a lot of stuff to the forefront, I don't know that I would have had the nerve to really tackle this book because so many people don't want to hear anything about it or talk about it because they presume they know what it's about and that it's about eroticizing a young girl and humanizing a pedophile. And the controversy basically comes down to when you read the book, it's pretty clear, and we'll get into how it's done later, that you're not supposed to be on Humbert Humbert's side and he is a victimizer. Yet the presentation in popular culture is rather that it's a forbidden romance between a willing girl and a 40-something man. And that it's not particularly creepy that it's simply a love that dare not speak its name, that it belongs more with, I don't know, um, lesbian couples in St. Louis in the 1920s or gay men in New Orleans in the 1940s than it does something that's truly transgressive, wrong, and hurtful. And where I think it really starts is in two places, and I'll hold on to the second one and let you talk about the first one, which is its route to publication. Well, Nabokov wrote this book in the early 1950s. He came to it, I think, after a long and frustrating career, was one of many writers in the period that were well-known but not selling very well. And when he finished the manuscript, he first submitted it to the major American publishers who certainly knew his name and knew his reputation, but nobody would touch it for obvious reasons in the in the mid-1950s. I mean, it was a novel that would have been incendiary. So he ended up having to publish it with a Parisian publisher named Olympia Press, which at the time was known for publishing what we would probably call soft porn novels. Now, keep in mind, this is in the age before visual pornography or cinematic pornography was really accessible. So most people's experience of anything coming close 
to porn would have been through fiction. In America, there's a long history of kind of cheesy, exploitative paperbacks. And so that's essentially what Olympia Press did best. They would they also were the publisher of Henry Miller's Tropic of Capricorn, right. Tropic of Cancer. But interestingly enough, the original uh, cover of Lolita, the 1955 version of it, was not what we would think of as a uh, cheesy paperback cover. It wasn't exploitative. It was a simple green cover with the title and the author's name on it. So it came out in Olympia Press. It was mentioned 1956, sort of, it was more spoken about than it could be read. You could not have a copy of it in America because the obscenity laws would, and it and had been seized in customs at a couple points. But then one American publisher did decide that they would take a chance with it. So it came out in um, 1958 from Putnam's and within three weeks, it sold 100,000 copies. And I think the the notoriety of the premise alone was what made it so controversial. There were all kinds of immediate bad taste jokes. Groucho Marx once remarked he was going to wait five years to read it so she'd be 18 when when he opened the cover, which is a good joke on one hand, but kind of tasteless on the other. Yeah, exactly. The other controversy, though, and I think that this is really where I, I think the novel the character type, the image of Lolita becomes problematic is through the 1962 film adaptation by Stanley Kubrick. Exactly. And so you're going to talk about that for a sec. Right. And that was one I was saying I'd hold on to because so at the outset of the episode here, we listened to the trailer for that 62 version. And obviously this is a, a verbal auditory podcast. You can't see this trailer, but I would recommend you look it up on YouTube if you're interested. You have these series of characters, and then when they introduce the young woman, she is cavorting, she goes around. So they Kubrick hires a girl who's Sue Lyon, who is made up to look older in some ways, who's pretty mature, who's pretty sexualized. And instead of showing a 12-year-old, which she is in the book when Humbert gets control of her, they have a 15-year-old who's made up to look older. And it makes it look kind of like a romantic romp and a farce and a dark comedy. And the movie, if you see it without having any knowledge of the book or really thinking about what it's about, kind of succeeds on those levels. Kubrick has some of his old traditional cast members. So Peter Sellers, whom he uses so much, is in it as Claire Quilty. And there's a lot of just weird, dark humor moments. And how they got that screenplay out of this novel, I'm not exactly sure. But that's where the whole romanticization, the idea of the forbidden loves and the overt sexualizing of the victim in the story, uh, Dolores Hayes, whom Humbert Humbert calls Lolita, that's where it really begins. And Kirk, you said it was originally published in the States by Putnam. So this paperback I have from 1986, it's 1986 reprint. The On the cover, it just has the words Lolita and the background to that word Lolita is a young woman smiling, wearing lipstick. And, and frankly, if you told me it was a 25-year-old, I, I would believe you. But you don't really much see her. So it's not necessarily that eroticized. But listen to the back cover description. So this is 
30 years after the initial publication of the novel, Vladimir Nabokov's world-famous erotic masterpiece, Lolita, the most tender, shocking, and outrageous love story ever told. Tender, huh? <laughs> Lolita has been banned, burned, censored, denounced, and read by more millions than any other book of its kind. It's about a middle-aged man's tormented desire for his nymphette stepdaughter. Nymphette is underlined. And as a honeymoon, uh, and a honeymoon without a wedding, and a romance as sweet as murder is innocence and a murder. So yeah. even this book in the 80s is really playing that zone. And then you would think after all the criticism that the film has endured when they remade it in the 90s, Adrian Lyne in 1997, starring Jeremy Irons as Humbert Humbert, when they cast Dominique Swain in the 90s, they do the same thing. There are a few scenes in the trailer. I, I haven't been able to bring myself to watch the movie because it did seem to me like they had it completely wrong. and. There are a few scenes in the trailers where she's wearing braces and looks kind of young, but then there are all these scenes of her in two-piece outfits and the, the, the lingering camera's gaze on her that sexualizes her completely. And I think you could argue, well, the camera is reflecting how Humbert or how Humbert is seeing her, yet uh, it seems, I don't know, why don't we just take a second here and see if we can watch that one as as well and just get a feel for how in 1997 they decide to tackle this this is Hayes Charlotte that's my love Beautiful. from Vladimir Nabokov's masterpiece She'll do anything you say. She's getting a thing about you. And from director Adrian Lyne. Who's the lassie? It's my daughter. You lie. She's not. What? I said your lie was hot. Comes a story <laughs> of love. Consuming, obsessive, doomed. You're a monster. You're a despicable criminal monster. So we we see there again a story of love, doomed love, and it's it's not love, of course, it's abuse. But we see here the the conundrum how people want to present it, and. I guess to our, our shame is that that seems to sell copies yeah. in ways that what the book's about does not. So maybe we should just start with a, as we have addressed the primary problem of how the book is seen, maybe talk a bit about where Nabokov is coming from. And something I, I don't know has been addressed enough with him, Kirk, is he's born right around the same time as some of our great American modernists are. He's within a few years I think he's born the same year as both as Ernest Hemingway, the year after Faulkner, and a couple of years after Fitzgerald. They're all born within three or four years of each other at the same time. And he's raised, uh, born in 1899 and raised in St. Petersburg, Russia. And his father's a journalist and a lawyer and kind of a liberal advocate and agitator. But they are also minor nobility. 
Vladimir is the oldest of five kids, and they're educated in English and French, that excellent education, as well as Russian, from an early age. And as a teenager, he gets interested and involved in literary life, starts publishing poems, and actually gets a book or two of poetry published as a young man. But the Bolshevik Revolution arrives along with the latter part of World War I. And so fleeing it, they head into Crimea in the Ukrainian Republic. And as revolution spreads out and moves further, they flee to England. And while there for many years or a number of years, uh, Nabokov begins attending Cambridge University. The family moves to Berlin and they have other family there in 1920. But his father is killed in 1922 when uh, he tries to shield a democratic Russian leader in exile from assassins who are coming after him. It's probably worth mentioning. I don't think these are Leninist assassins. I think they're monarchist assassins. And his father's uh, maybe that his father was seen as being part of a problem that had brought about the Bolsheviks or, or, or connected to the Bolsheviks. I'm not sure. Nabokov's able to get through university, though, despite his grief and how much the family is disturbed. And within a couple of years, in 1923, he meets his soon-to-be wife, Vera, who is a Russian Jewish woman. And their son, Dmitry, is born in 1934. During his time as an exile in the Russian immigre population, the expat population in Berlin, he starts publishing short fiction and novels, but they're all written in Russian. So they're published in small presses, but not able to really be published in Russia under the totalitarian regime that comes out of from Lenin to Trotsky and moving into Stalin, of course, during that time period. So then, of course, again, they have problems with the totalitarian regime as the Nazis come into power in Berlin. And Nabokov understands pretty early what's going on with all that and fearing for his wife and his family. So they flee to France. In 1940, most of the family, as the German army is surging across France, moves on to the United States. His brother Sergei stays behind and dies five years later in a concentration camp. So he finally publishes his first novel in English in 1941. And in 1945, he becomes a naturalized American citizen. And he begins doing a lot of volunteer work as an amateur lepidopterist. Do you remember what that means? Butterfly expert. He's one of the leading experts nationally in, in butterflies at the time. But he also <laughs> gets a job teaching Russian literature and languages at Wellesley, and then it moves into modern literature and so on. And he's at, for over a decade at Cornell University. And his reputation as a writer really takes off with Ben Sinister in 1947, which is a very experimental, very modernist novel. And whenever you say modernist as an English teacher, you're really talking about two different ways of looking at a book. So not only are we talking kind of between the World Wars writing and even post-World War II writing by that, this generation of writers, we either mean that it's experimenting with form and style a good bit in the way that Ulysses does, or something that's really focused on how things have changed and fallen apart, the whole lost generation notion that Hemingway and Fitzgerald deal with so much. And so then Lolita follows initially 55, then later published in the United States, as you said, Pell Fire, another very modern experimental novel published in 1962. And Lolita becomes a bestseller. And with the money from this, and then, of course, with the film uh, rights being purchased from it, uh, he becomes pretty well to do. And he and his wife then moved to Switzerland, 1961, the year before the movie comes out. They lived there until he dies in 1977. 
That's a great overview of his uh, life, very productive career. I would just mention that sort of the main progenitors of Lolita in his earlier career, he wrote a novel called Laughter in the Dark in 1932. Yes. And uh, that sort of rehearses the plot of Lolita a little bit. There's also a novel from 1937 called The Gift. And then there's a 1939 manuscript called The Enchanter that was not published or at least not translated into English until the mid 80s that rehearses a lot of the uh, story too. So the very idea of an older man following falling in love with a underage girl, if we can say it that way, was not, did not, did not come to him in the 1950s. It had been a theme he had been exploring all throughout. And I would say one of the ways of getting into the book is understanding that that is uh, a, a literary trope going all the way back. It's a literary premise. We also, when we talk about Nabokov being a modernist, I, I would say that one of the ways of thinking of him is in the later years of modernism, in which he's writing his greatest work, Lolita and Pale Fire. Modernism becomes a becomes more akin to what we think of as formalism. I mean, it is right. about the style, it is about the form, it's about the language. And Nabokov is probably our exemplar par excellence of this latter stage of modernism, which means that he is about vocabulary, he is about puns, he's about all sorts of verbal games right down to anagrams. Uh, There's a sense of architectural balance in the novel. One of the great devices that he plays with that makes the novel, really propels the novel, is the uh, concept of the doppelganger or the double. Right. And in fact, he had a novel called The Double at one point as well. So he's he's really interested in art for art's sake. Yes. And that's a very important idea to keep in mind as we try to read this novel and grapple with the idea to what do how do we balance the aesthetics which are absolutely brilliant with the abhorrent subject matter i had not thought of it in terms of the real formalist aspects of the novel before but you're absolutely right what's fascinating is that school of theory before it kind of gets merged with what we call new criticism in the 20s is started by russian critics Mm-hmm. And it kind of gets subsumed under new criticism, which is also happening at the same time as modernism. Often it's all conflated, but formalism really is a distinct thing. And so it's interesting how some aspects uh, and the formalist element of modernism that you discuss is really what forms the bedrock for postmodernism later on. So I think that's really a smart thing to bring up. But you're right. There is a long, weird tradition of this in literature, and it kind of comes out in two or three different ways. And I guess you would say unironically, historically, and ironically in the more modern sense. So we go back to Petrarch and the ironic, or or I should say the debates and discussions of how old is the uh, obsessive love fixation of Laura supposed to be in, in Petrarch. We don't really Completely no, but there's a lot of suggestions and some indication that she's supposed to be 12 or 13 or something like that. Of course, back in Petrarch's day, people, you know, the average age was 37 or something. So 
the age, what we would think of as what is the appropriate age for, uh, what age is a, a child and adult is a little bit of a sky, sliding scale. Yeah. And it becomes a legal issue very quickly. I mean, a large part of what this book is, the, the debates that surround this book uh, have to deal with questions of consent. Yeah. And what are what are the age of consent? Generally, I am I right in saying that the age of consent is usually 16 or is it 18 now? I think it probably all depends on the states. Um, I'm not really sure. And then there's also the age of consent to be married, where a lot of times you can be right. married younger than 18 if your parents consent to it or not. I think, though, in most cases, we probably think, depending which state you're in, it's it's usually 18 and in some cases, probably 16 or 17. So in a legal sense, right off the bat, what nullifies this whole notion of Lolita as a love story is the very fact that that it is statutory rape. No matter right. how you slice or dice it, uh, in a legal sense, this pursuit and, and quote unquote seduction of a 12, 13-year-old girl is statutory rape. I, and when you were reading out the covers, I just wanted to point out that even more recently in 1997, the, the paperback that came out as a way to promote the I think the, movie, with the movie, yeah, has a quote from Vanity Fair that calls it the only convincing love story of our century. And that <laughs> is deeply troubling as well. No kidding. What I would wow. say, though, is it is Nabokov's love story with the English language. Yes. And if we are going to be forced to talk about ideas of love, I think we need to acknowledge that really what he's doing here is writing one of the greatest American novels in a technical sense with the precision and the exactitude, uh, but also the dexterity and the the erudition that the English language allows. Absolutely. And in fact, in the second edition of the book, Lolita, or I should say the second Putnam edition, when it became a bestseller, he actually wrote a, a new afterward called on a book entitled Lolita. And in that he does go over those early progenitor versions he had written in, in Russian, you described before, but he also does say that someone said it's something along the lines of his love affair with American writing or something. And he corrects him saying, no, that's not right, but it is my love for English. Yeah. And so he says exactly what you're saying. And I think understanding that he is utterly on the one hand absorbed in language and the games with it. And on the other hand, really taking, uh, really taking up the, the cross of experimentalism and formalism that you see coming out of high modernism, as we call it, is a big key to unlocking the story. And I think there's two things you have to understand coming into this as a new reader. The first one is that it is a frame story and why that's important. And Kirk, will you explain what a frame story is? A frame story is simply a novel or a text that where the main narrative is prefaced or packaged within some sort of uh, preface or opening device. In this case, the opening words of the novel are not the famous Lolita, love of my life paragraph that people love to quote. It's actually a rather dry and pedantic even report from a 
psychologist who is packaging the manuscript for us. He tells us that this is a book that the author has not titled Lolita, but titled The Confession of a White Widowed Male. Mm. And the author of this particular report is Dr. John Ray Jr. And I think what he's what Nabokov is doing here is a couple different things. First and foremost, he's presenting this as a sort of parody of academic discourse of the maybe uh, contemporary psychology industry. Nabokov right. was not uh, a Freudian. In fact, he thought Freud was pretty reductive. So a lot of what going is going on here is that he's uh, framing it, but he's also parroting, I think, what we might today call the idea of the moral panic. You know, this is an age, uh, Lolita comes out not too long after Dr. Frederick Wortham comes out with a famous book called Seduction of the Innocent, in which they <laughs> go after the comic book industry. Comic books, right. And there's all sorts of sociological anxieties about juvenile delinquents and about young people going wild. 1950s are the era in which the American teenager becomes uh, kind of the focus of American the enemy, in Exactly. A way. And yet, culture of teenagers becomes something that is endlessly exploited by the, the culture around us. And that's very important for how Lolita, the character type, separate from the character in the book, gets packaged and repackaged from decade to decade. But Dr. Ray's preface ends with a line that I think is pretty interesting because this is what it's, uh, the frame of the novel is sort of making fun of, I think, this sort of moral panic. And he says, Lolita should make all of us, parents, social workers, educated, apply ourselves with still greater vigilance and vision. Yeah. To the task of bringing up a better generation in a safer world. I mean, that is straight out of that sociological discourse. At the right. same time, in this opening frame, I think that Dr. Ray, maybe somewhat paradoxically, also gives us a justification for reading the book as art for art's sake. He says a few paragraphs earlier, he says, Viewed simply as a novel, Lolita deals with situations and emotions that would remain exasperatingly vague to the reader had their expression been etoliated by means of platinitudinous invasions. Ah. Not a single obscene term is to be found in the whole work. Indeed, the robust Philistine who is conditioned by modern conventions into accepting without qualms a lavish array of four-letter words in a banal novel will be quite shocked by their absence here. And he goes on to basically argue that book can be read as a case history of a uh, perverted man, or it can be read as an artistic statement of craft. What, it, what he's arguing it shouldn't be looked at as, however, is pornography. Right. And again, I think that Nabokov, who advocated for not he was not campaigned for it, but he did give interviews in the 70s at a period of time in which, by the way, pornography started on its journey to becoming mainstream with the release of Deep Throat. The rating system. The rating system, yeah. He was opposed to pornography, and I think part of what he was opposed to is not just the legalities of it, but the banality yeah. of, of pornography. So. Even his ironic frame here wants us to understand that this is a book about art. And again, the major interpretive struggle 
that we have in this book, it simply boils down to when we talk about this vile character, Humbert Humbert, can we separate the art from the artist? Right. Let me give you a just a quick contemporary analogy as maybe one way of, of dramatizing this. Last okay. year, sort of in the wake of Me Too, and there's been a lot of commentary on Lolita in the wake of Me Too that I think is very important. Nobody is out there saying cancel Lolita or ban it, banish it, because I think people recognize the irony that Nabokov uses here, at least attentive readers do. I will say, I'll be very honest with you, I would not teach this book in this day and age. No, I would not either. I did in the 90s when I was young in my career. And, you know, I did have students that were offended by it. And we talked a lot about a not how not to be offended by it. But the very premise of it, I think, is more than we want to deal with in this right. day and age. That wasn't necessarily the case when things were more taboo in the 1950s. But anyway, there's a French novelist named Gabriel Matzneft who has made a whole career, in a sense, out of sort of dramatizing or exploring his uh, more pedophilic inclinations. I mean, mm. one of his books is called Under 16 Years Old. But he was accused last year by another French writer, Vanessa uh, Springora, uh, who wrote a book called Consent, which is about her relationship as a underaged teenager with this great French writer. And I think it brings to mind a lot of these, uh, these sort of images of older men with younger women right. and the way that we as a culture probably have not, we, well, in fact, we have not questioned that enough. And that's one of the, I think, really great ways that this novel can be used to have a conversation about, uh, about gender uh, politics and cultural dynamics. We should also mention, because Humbert Humber does, that there was a famous case in the late or the early 50s, I believe, of a, uh, she's often called the real Lolita now. In fact, there's a great book by Sarah Weinman that traces her history and how Nabokov uh, adapted this story. But there was a young teenager named Sally Horner who was abducted by a 50-year-old, I believe he was a mechanic named Frank mm. LaSalle. And it was, uh, they, much of the on-the-road portion of, the, of this novel kind of draws from the story of LaSalle moving around uh, right. from place to place with this, uh, with this young girl, claiming that he was an FBI agent, that if she told anybody where she was, that, that her parents would be arrested. And in fact, once she was saved after, I want to say, almost a two-year period, she was very tragically killed in a car wreck and just a, a life that uh, never really had a chance. And in a lot of ways, I think that's kind of the pinpoint of empathy that we, if we as readers try to recover the real Dolores Hayes from Humbert Humbert's narration, that's maybe one of the pivot points to start with. Right. I guess I should bring up too that people are divided and how you say the name is, so Humbert Humbert is European, so is his name Humbert Humbert? Or Humbert, it's it's just yeah. hard to remember to say it. I think Kirk and I will mostly say Humbert, Humbert. And if you think it should be Humbert, Humbert, we apologize for that. And we hope you'll forgive us our failings. Yeah. The other side of it is, of course, that Humbert, Humbert is a witty, at times charming narrator. But he is utterly an unreliable narrator who, as he's making these snide remarks and he's cutting references to people which you might find yourself chuckling over you realize the dark side to him so he is in a tradition of two kind of er examples i can think of first would be 
the Telltale Heart by Poe, where the narrator is almost lying to the, the audience at first until his mania overcomes him and you realize that he's the murderer and he's the problem and all this has happened and it all comes gushing out. And even better is My Last Duchess by Browning, right. which is a famous dramatic monologue where a man who's trying to broker a arranged marriage between a young noble woman and the Duke of Ferrara comes to listen to the Duke of Ferrara explain, looking at a painting, all the problems with the last duchess who died. So it's almost like you're trying to sell the guy a Dodge Ram truck and he wants to tell you what the problem was with the Ford F-150 he had and how he had to get rid of it. The implication is, of course, that he murders his former wife for wanting to have her own life and her own joys and have her own personality. And what's fascinating about that poem is he tells you so much about himself as he goes through his dramatic monologue as a, on the one hand, reliable narrator, because his personality can't help but shine through, even as he's acting like he's so great and so wonderful. So here, Humbert Humbert is, as he's trying to show himself as so smart and so good looking and so cool and so witty, the veneer cracks over and over again. So one place, for example, he argues that when they first have sex together, that she seduces him, not the other way around, despite him having drugged her and brought her to this motel in the middle of nowhere and all those kinds of things. And then there's a lot of textual evidence all around that, that he's just having you on and that it's not really true what he's saying there. Before we kind of even go down the route of that, going further into the plot and what happens, we ask that question about art, which is profoundly accomplished aesthetically, horrific in terms of content. Is the progenitor about this have to be Death in Venice, Bert? By by Thomas Mann. Yeah, I think so. That's a that's a great artistic example of of the the sorts of issues that we confront when, on the one hand, we're pleased by the style and yet repulsed by the storyline. So let me ask you this: When did you first read Lolita? Oh, I, I you know I want to say that I was probably a. Uh, mid-teenager, maybe 15 or 16, and totally oblivious to it. Really kind of read it more for the sensational subject matter, but did not formally really crack it in crack into it probably till an undergraduate, at which point I realized just how beautiful the writing was. And like many readers, I think that I probably seized a little too earnestly, at least in turn without grappling with the narrator, seized a little too earnestly on the closing lines of the novel, which are just absolutely beautiful, right? but difficult to a appreciate as art. And I probably did not appreciate the the line about, I mean, let me just read the last line because I just think it encapsulates, this is not necessarily indicative of how romantic about art that Nabokov was. And I think that's maybe what I didn't realize for a long time, but one had to choose between him and HH. He's speaking to Dolly Hayes. And one wanted H.H. to exist at least a couple months longer, so as to have him make you live in the minds of later generations. I am thinking of aurochs and angels, the secret of durable pigments, prophetic sonics, the refuge of art. And this is the only immortality you and I may share, my Lolita. I think that idea of the immortality of art, the refuge of art, that's a double play there. and. Right. It's asking on the one hand, it's the notion of art for art's sake and finding beauty 
in the language. But I also think that he was very aware of creating the idea that is refuge not just an escape, but it is an is it also an aversion? Right. Is it an obfuscation of what's actually right. occurred? In exactly. Case? Exactly. Yeah. The page right before that, he goes, "This then is my story." I've reread it. It has bits of marrow sticking to it and blood and beautiful bright green flies. And this or that twist of it, I feel my slippery self eluding me, gliding into deeper and darker waters than I care to probe. And it's interesting because as it goes along, we do see maybe a little bit of self-recognition starting to appear in Humbert towards the latter part of the book. So you just did something really important and good. And I think it's something that Jamie Loft has helped me recognize when I listen to her very good podcast. And that is the distinction between Dolores or Dolly Hayes, which is the girl in the book who is raped by Humbert Humbert and Lolita, which is his his imaginary construct. He tries to graft onto the frame of who Dolores Hayes is. And no one in the book is named Lolita or referred to as Lolita. The nickname her mother gives her is Lo, and he turns that into Lolita. And we, of course, have those famous, as you said, when we get to uh, Humbert's opening sequence, as opposed to John Ray's opening sequence, Lolita, light of my life, fire of my loins, my sin, my soul, Lolita, the tip of the tongue, taking a trip of three steps down the palate to tap at three on the teeth, Lolita. She was low, plain low in the morning, standing four foot ten in one sock. She was Lola in slacks. She was Dolly at school. She was Dolores on the dotted line. But in my arms, she was always Lolita. Well, you know, if you've got two 16-year-olds talking about each other and one of them has turned 30, he's looking back on his boyhood love, that's one thing. When it's a guy in his late 40s talking about meeting a 12-year-old girl, it's another thing. And like you, when I first read it as an undergraduate, I was more taken in by the weirdness of it. I d- definitely didn't find it of any kind of pornographic value, thank God. Yeah. But on the other hand, I was kind of swayed by the language and by kind of Humbert's working out solutions and problems. And I I certainly did not properly see things from Lolita's point of view as a victim. Yeah. And I think another difficulty of that is the book is, I mean, I don't know how to say this other than the book is in spots funny as hell. I mean, it is a satire of America in the late 40s. It's usually when he's he's trashing American middle-class culture. There's a whole section when he first meets Dolores's mother, Charlotte, and eventually worms his way into marrying her. So he has some sort of legal connection to uh, Dolly. That whole section is a, it's a novel of manners about late forties America when he's in Ramsdale. And when they go on the road, you get a very vivid glimpse of mid-century America, yeah, particularly hotel culture and yeah. just how sort of- Well, or we should really say motel culture. Yeah. How gauche they, how gauche yeah. they were back in the day. I mean, when he, when he first rapes Lolita, and I'm going to use that term- It is so the term to use. Absolutely. So we don't say when they first make love. Right. 
it's at a hotel called the Enchanted Hunters. And you just get a sense of America blossoming out of World War II into sort of the proto, I don't want to say sleaziness, but the kind of innuendo or the double entendres that are going to become so vulgar and crass in American culture by the right. by the mid-70s. And just the description of that, every time I read that icky hotel scene, I always think of those um, weird hotels from the late 70s and early 80s that tried to present themselves as romantic getaways, getaways. with heart-shaped beds and you know heart-shaped bathtubs and, and vibrating engines into beds. Yeah, exactly. Things, as far as exactly. I quote, massage. Right. Yeah, it really prefigures in some ways the strange things you see in early 60s fiction of what we tend to think of as suburban reality. So John Mm -hmm. Updike, John Cheever, and Richard Yates, you know, Revolutionary Road and uh, all the New Yorker short stories of Cheever, the rabbit stories and novels by Updike. You see a lot of that prefigured in this novel. To me, it's fascinating. We've said over and over again, this is a book about language and about using formal constructiveness in the structure of the narrative and the characterization and the plot to get across ideas and then all these complex ways. And I think this is not the guy's first language. Yeah. And there's two writers I can think of who had this kind of amazing impact on writing in English. The other one would be Joseph Conrad, whose first language is Polish and then Russian. And, he learned, and then he learns English. Yeah. And he starts publishing in English in his 40s. And for that matter, Nabokov starts publishing in English and he's 40 or 41, the first time he and publishes it's, in English. It's his third language as well. Yeah. So, yeah, Russian, French, to English. And so it does make me feel a little better than though he's educated in it from his time as a small child, but it does also make you regretful of how poor language instruction is for many Americans in much of the United States. There's also a persistent sense throughout his artsiness that he's also satirizing that pretentiousness. I mean, Humbert is, yeah. you know, he he is a, he wants to be an elite and an intellectual, but he's also pretty pompous. Right. So he really is at the same time he's making fun of American white bread, mayonnaise sandwich, Velveeta cheese, you know, lower middle class, middle class suburbia. He's at the same time making fun of European pretensions of grandeur. Right. And that they're the carriers and purveyors of all culture. He is, in a way, trashing the Thomas Manns of the world. Because when I read Death in Venice, the thing that's not sufficiently in there for me is, is criticism of the protagonist's point of view. And I know he's horrified, kind of, as he comes to realize that his fascination with the boy he sees at the beach is sexual rather than simply pure. Yeah. But I think it's simply the disease that takes care of him and not any kind of recognition or epiphany. I think that's a it's a very problematical novel and I've not heard it properly discussed on a good podcast. So right. whoever's out there doing great 20th century European novel podcasts, that's one we'd like you to add to your list. Well, the other thing is that notion of uh, European decadence is such a, an American theme. Yeah. And I think what we sort of take for granted is the idea that our stereotype of European culture is that uh, they that that certain cultures, mostly French, are very, they <laughs> the way it's always described is they have a less sentimental attachment to marriage mm. uh, or the idea of monogamy that we perhaps have or that we like to make, you know, kind of the crux of our idea of morality. So I, 
I do think that that notion of European decadence or European sophistication is being made fun of too. Let me ask you this though, Scott, we have a, an antagonist, a perceived antagonist, right? Claire, named Claire Quilty, who's a playwright. And I'm, I'm wondering how he fits into this whole scheme. Well, I think you identified him earlier. And uh, I do want to come back to talking about the Enchanted Hunters as well, yeah. by the way, the motel. And the reason I keep focused on motel, because that is the thing that grows up in the 40s and 50s, these drive up strips of rooms, so usually one or two or triple deckers, and everything opens to the outside and you drive up, you check in, check out, you drive away. There's no bag boys or, you know, or, or bell boys, excuse me, taking the materials up to the room, all that's taken care of. So Quilty, you, I think you tackled him exactly. He is the doppelganger of Humbert. He is exactly like Humbert Humbert. And in the same way that Humbert Humbert develops a scheme and a methodology and a mechanism for stealing Dolores from her mother and trying to arrange her mother's death and kind of uh, accomplishing it completely by accident rather than by being good at it. Quilty's doing the exact same thing to him. Yeah. And Quilty, just like Humbert, escaping into language and art through his crafting of the narrative, does it through portraying himself as a theater man and a dramatician and a director and actor and all those kinds of things, and is equally morally bereft. Now, the narrative does do one very strange thing regarding the distinction between them that I think we maybe need to come back to because it reminds me of when I did read this in college in a conversation with which I had with a classmate. And the other thing I was going to say about all that was, again, when I read it in my 20s, I was mostly about the aesthetics, but it really did start to get on me. When I reread it at 30, I think I read it properly and really despised Humbert Humbert. And rereading it now, I really wanted to just take him in a dark room and break his neck. <laughs> but I should say I've raised two teenage daughters and I have, think, a different view yeah. because of that. But and based on the guys who play in movies, I think I could do it. Just laying that out there. Well, it, when, we, when we yeah. when we say decadent, decadent European intellectual, we're also talking an effete sort yeah. of, you know, not the image of American masculinity. I guess we would we would associate with uh, literary heroes. Certainly, he's not he's not Sal Paradise from On the Road or Dean Moriarty. His first stop on the road is the motel. Mm -hmm. That's where they had their consummation. And the way it's described is very problematical. So he lies to you and makes it seem like it's something she really enjoyed. And it's very romantic. And then within the next chapter, we find she's in pain and distress and that he rapes her three times that night or, or that morning, I, I guess I should say. And it's not simply once, but I think Nabokov, he does a weird thing there. And I don't know if we're supposed to question it. Or if it's on purpose, to me, it's weird. It's almost like he tries to cut Humbert a little bit of slack because he has Dolores having already been sexually active with the boy of her own age. That's a very interesting decision on Nabokov's part. Yeah, um, I, I find it troubling. Own, yeah, too. my own feeling is that part of what that does, uh, I, and it may be that what he's doing, and I've never read anything that he stayed that he stated about why he made that choice. But to me, what it sort of suggests is his awareness that in uh, American culture, that sexual initiation tends to be, at least for some people, kind of a casual, very insignificant thing, whereas huh. more 
literary world or more uh, legalistic world puts a, an emphasis on that deflowering, on right. that that loss of the loss of virginity. I mean, think of how many novels we've read that, or uh, coming of age movies, where the uh, where the loss of virginity is a initiation ritual meant to introduce us to the adult world. I mean, you and I came of age in the. 80s when every movie was some yeah. kind of sexploitation comedy. I think one of Tom Cruise's earliest movies was a, a thing Ris- called Losing It. Uh, uh, or, or Risky Business where he yeah. hires a prostitute. You're right. Uh, but Losing It was the same sort of idea was they were going to go to Mexico to lose their virginity with, yeah. a, with a prostitute. And Set- it just... It's set back in the 50s, right? I don't think that one was. I think you're okay. thinking of Porky's, which was well, another Porky's one. Porky's movies, right, yeah. which were, which were kind of exploitative and awful. Yeah, and juvenile. That's, that's the other thing I would say is that there is something about Americans' attitude towards sexuality that has never grown into an adult idea of sexuality. We, right. we, we tend to, you know, we tend to sort of sensationalize teen sexuality. I just finished watching Euphoria, the HBO series where every kid on there is into sex and drugs. And it's a very casual and different attitude towards sexuality. And I think maybe that's what he's doing there is because Humbert Humbert wants Lolita to be this great artistic icon. And that idea that he is not the first gives us some insight into American teen culture where that was perhaps not as highly valued as an aesthete or an aesthete like Humbert Humbert would believe it would be. You know, it's weird because I feel like he's, on the one hand, just taking it easy on Humbert, but because he's not leading her from innocence right. uh, into, into depravity or experience, and the, at which at which point he'll dump her for another innocent. Right. Well, and that's one of the weird things actually that happens in the book that is, I think, truly interesting as opposed to this sequence. I I will go so far as to say I think this is a bit of a an artistic failing on his part at this point, okay. even if it is accomplishing something regarding a commentary on, you know, the kind of casual notions of this stuff in American culture, or rather what a European immigrant in his 40s and 50s thinks about right. American teenage culture. Uh, we're not exactly sure how in much he knows, although his son, we should say, is probably, if his son's bur- born in 34. 34. So by 1950, he's 16. Yeah. So maybe through his son, he has some experiences with these. Although his son grows up internationally for a few years, I guess. And then, but spends his, you know, from the time he's 10 or so on anyway, or really seven on, he's in America. So that mm-hmm. is probably interesting with that. You mentioned Sal Paradise, and that is our autobiographical narrator character from Jack Kerouac's On the Road and along with his other autobiographical. Sidekick. Uh, character. Yeah, along with Dean Moriarty based on Neil Cassidy. Neil Cassidy, thank you. And famous book on the road. And we truly do have a road culture in America that I don't believe exists anywhere else. Europe has a train culture mm-hmm. and Europe has a shipping, a ship culture that we glom onto sometimes. But the United States, post World War II, we saw how the, the German armies used the Autobahn system effectively. And so fearing Russian invasion or perhaps invasion from, I don't know, Chile or someone, we create this vast 
interstate system, let our trains die on the vine, uh, Eisenhower does this as a um, defense mechanism, uh, not only to make it easy to get from place to place, but so that we can have t- tanks and military trucks cruise down these interstates at great speed to get to the different parts of the United States where we're, we have fear. Later, he expressed a, a great regret that he did this to the detriment of the train passenger train industry and felt that it was a wrong path. And we're still stuck with it all these years later. But it is American culture. So we have movie after movie in the 50s and 60s. We had all these Kerouac novels. And he tends to go back to the same well very often in his writing, Mm -hmm. but going and going and going and going. And even when you read On the Road, it's really the same story told three times. Right. You know, we went there and did these cool things. And here's all the experiences we had representing, you know, post-war guys in their 20s. Yeah. And three times in a row. And it forms a whole beatnik, uh, the beat movement. It is the big thing, the whole notion of the road trip. Yeah. Well, it's a celebration in that period of time. Mobility becomes a a figure for the idea of the American upward mobility. and the How many rock songs are written about cars? Yeah, exactly. And a lot of that comes because those particular era of of artists were raised in the fifties where those kinds of road trips were. And it was, it was a, it was a form of travel that was available to, you know, the middle class. That was the the halcyon period for the middle class in the fifties and sixties. So the, the road trip idea, uh, it becomes, uh, I mean, you can, you can go online and find maps that will allow you to trace the trajectory of Humbert Humbert and Lolita in in those two different periods, and even ones that allow you to uh, retrace his pursuit of uh, Claire Quilty. And I think it just dramatizes that idea again, that America is a vast space and that uh, sort of the road has a dual meaning. On the one hand, it means the endless potential, but like they discovered with westward expansion, there is ultimately nowhere further west to go. And you end up with a lot of wasted motion, a lot right. of, of movement for its own sake. And I think that sort of endless loop that both On the Road and Lolita dramatize is uh, as a, as an artistic awareness foreshadowing what we live with today in the age of, you know, four or $5 gas. Right. And then we think of the uh, great book, and I want to say it's late 70s, but I may be wrong by William Leesteet Moon, Blue Highways, right, which right. is about the guy who sets out in the van to drive only the highways that don't connect to the interstates. Yeah. And he meets people from all over America. He's Native American and he meets people from all over the United States and just has these very real interactions with them, these interesting discussions. Yeah. And it's a way of getting in touch with real America. Yeah. A great deal of Lolita and Humbert's um, travels would have been on Route 66, which is the most yep. iconic roadway in America. You know, it's Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath, but yep. it's also the the source of the song, you know, and the TV show and all of that. So it's, yep. you know, nobody, but nobody writes a song about how I love I-65. No, n- nor will we. Yeah. <laughs> I will say I tried to think after I asked that question about rock songs and the road, that I started thinking about all the great songs about trains. And the only one I really came up with was REM's song driver eight right. from their third or fourth album, depending if you count the first EP. Yeah. 
and other than that, I couldn't really. I know there's another one. It's right fantastic on the song. The the one I think kind of the quintessential train song would be Mystery Train that Elvis oh, Presley of course, did. Of course, because that's that became the title of Grail Marcus's book about images of America and popular right. music. One of the interesting things to ask about Lolita is what if what if he hadn't written started on this book until after 1955. Yeah. And Dolores was just a little, little younger, uh, instead of being born in 1935, being born in say 1940, 42, and the degree to which maybe the presentation of teenage life would have had to confront yeah. rock and roll, yeah. because there's a lot in this book about teen, teen music and teen popular culture. And of course, Nabokov sees, I think, American popular culture as junk there's just yeah. l- whole lists sometimes in here about things that she has in her pockets, or then it's just kind of detritus. So how supreme the irony that American pop culture is what drags the book through the mud. Yeah. yeah. The f- not only the films, but the iconography that comes out of the films, uh, you know, the sucking on the lollipop with the kind of sexual expression on the face, the heart-shaped sunglasses from the book yeah. covers and movie posters. When we were talking about the movie, I think that's one of the points that I wanted to make was that our predominant image of Lolita comes from the poster, not even from the movie, but the poster and that image of Sue Lyon with the heart-shaped glasses and that, and that frankly sort of symbolism of fellation where you have a teenager with a lollipop. I mean, how many times have we had to sit through that in American popular culture since Lolita? It's just, it, again, when I say American notions of sexuality are juvenile, that's a perfect example of that to me. The idea that somehow looking on lollipops or ice cream cones or whatever, the, the notion that we're going to put a woman in the subservient position of, of that and sort of violate her, uh, sexualize what is a pretty innocent act through some kind of association with oral sex is just, right. uh, you know, it's, it's stupid. It is but, stupid. But in the early 60s, it was provocative. And right. that whole idea of Lolita as a kind of fashion is arguably more ingrained in our popular culture today than it was even 60 years ago when that movie well, was first Jamie, released. Jamie Loftus goes over the internet cult and culture of yeah. people who see it as a way of dressing as sexualized young women. And they make a big deal out of they're not doing it to be victims. They're not doing it because they want men to look at them or have anything to do with them. So, okay. They claim it's an empowerment. Uh, I would just point out, she spends a lot of time talking about Lana Del Rey, who I love. I mean, I think she's a fabulous songwriter and a, a great musician. She's also, at this point, 36 years old. Yeah. And it's not my place to critique any of this, but when she first started projecting that Lolita imagery 12 well, about 10 years ago, you have somebody who's in their mid-20s, which is an adult, but Think about how much of our image of beauty in American culture is tied to that idea of a of a young woman, a teenage sure. girl. Like and 18 to 28 or so, yeah. that kind of or 16 to 28, whatever. And it it is sort of troubling. You know, you yes. do kind of wish there were more images of of adult women, elder statesmen of women 
that that were able to maybe influence away from that or or even women in that demographic that rejected that idea. I I know they're out there and I I know there are cultures that are like that. You know, I'm particularly fascinated right now by the by the emergence of this whole idea of dark academia, which is a subculture that's sort of tied to Donna Tart, huh. kind of Edwardian and androgynous, uh, very, very much more Virginia Woolf than what we think of as uh, as sort of the sexualized American woman. Real, real quick, Kirk. So when you say dark, you mean the Gothic novel set in the Academy you don't mean well, there's a, a kind of academic? No, there's a subculture called dark academia that people of fashion where they dress, you know, sort of Edwardian era. There's oh. lots of tweeds. It's almost British private school look. Okay. A lot of it comes out of Tarts, The Secret History. It's associated with that. You know, honestly, I've seen that at conferences. And I always assumed mm-hmm. those people were like, I knew a girl in college who was a theater English major, theater minor, had done study abroad, and she wore fingerless gloves and a cape. Yeah. And in my mind, just theater people. You yeah. know, it was just there's always a showboat, just well, like the, the hat guy, like every literary conference. Yeah. People who can't really get away if wearing an Indiana Jones style fedora <laughs> back home because everyone makes fun of them. But when they go to a conference, they're carrying a hat and they're wearing a hat, by God, yeah. at the conference. Because in their mind, they're Harrison Ford with the bullwhip. Well, I think there's also part of what that subculture is doing is allowing people to sort of imagine themselves in academic roles, whether as a student or a teacher, in ways that the economy does not allow. I mean, if you think (laughs) of fashion today and our ability to maintain identities, very few of us have that kind of stuck in the limbo of business casual. And I often feel like a prisoner of khaki and I would love to break out in three-piece suits or whatever, but they're, I would end up looking like Humbert Humbert, a bit of a fop or something like that. Well, part of that is that although in American culture thinks of the academic elite as being this huge group of people, not realizing you're really talking about a handful of Ivy League and pseudo Ivy League colleges yeah. and a handful of positions at state universities. Right. And it's not that many people nationwide compared to, say, the number of lawyers in any given medium sized yeah. city yeah. who can really make serious money or afford to do that. Your standard associate professor at a small college is can afford khaki. He can't afford yeah. to get the, the, the suit dry cleaned every other yeah. week. We're not making enough bank right. to, dr- to dress like Charlie Watts with bespoke suits or whatever. Yeah. Usually grading one set of freshman essays knocks that romance of the academy down a few pegs. And yep, so by the time exactly. you finish grad school. So let's go back to Claire, Kil- Claire Quilty. We okay. talked about the dark double and the doppelganger side of him. Here's the thing I wanted to ask you. When he finds, when Humbert Humbert finds Dolores again, and she's gone off and gotten married and is soon to have a child. He still wants her to leave with him. Right. And I said early on in the podcast that I had a friend of mine in the class where we studied this ask me a question. This is a, a woman student about my age. So I guess I was 20, 21. And she says, well, do you think he really loved her? And my first response to her kind of angrily was, why does that matter? Mm-hmm. And I think it's still an appropriate response, perhaps without the tone or attitude I had. But I think it is an interesting thing in here. Even seeing her now, she's no longer a nymphette. She's grown. She's well, got another. Let's be blunt. She's at 
17, she's worn out. Yeah. I mean, the way that he describes her, all of those qualities that he, the nymphette qualities have been used up. And that's one of the ways in which the book, I think, sort of dramatizes what will eventually happen with the emergence of, of fiction about youth culture is the idea that you use up your youth and you age yourself prematurely because it's a kind of... Uh, interiorization of that very American ideal of planned obsolescence. What are you going to do with youth? It's not going to last. Oh, wow. Yeah. Anyway, so you might as well just use it up. But in her case, it's been used up by men. Yeah. But what's interesting is he still wants her to come with him and stay with him. And and then he's so offended, whereas Quilty did see her completely as just disposable when she emerged beyond the nymphette stage. He's done with her and has moved on. And that's part of what seems to offend and he, Humber. And Quilty dumps her because she won't participate in pornographic movies. Yeah, in, a, in the movie. He right. wants to be in the blue movies. Right. I think that Quilty wants to believe that he he sees in Quilty himself. Right. But this is his opportunity to try to, I think, redeem himself a right. little bit. But the question, here's the analogy that I would offer you. How many women out there have we ever met that had some sort of relationship as adolescents, whether it was of age or not, with older men that then come back into their lives and either behave or that they contact maybe a little later on and say to them, you know, you were really out of bounds. You should have been the adult in that situation and protected me. And how many of the men say one of two things? Well, let me take care of you now. Let me make amends. Let me do whatever I can to apologize. Or the flip side is it was your fault. You, you seduced me. Right. And one, one thing I want to point out is if you read some of the early critical responses to Lolita, there is absolutely a tone deafness on the part of, of very brilliant male critics about Lolita's what we would today call agency over her own sexuality. Yeah. There is an incredible line out of Lionel Trilling where he describes that moment in the motel as Lolita ravishing Humbert Humbert. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. I don't understand. It's like they fall so in love with the language, but miss the whole point of the narrative style, which is that you cannot trust Humbert Humbert. And I guess that's ultimately my question is, do we trust that he really had developed feelings and feels some sense of guilt and shame, given that this whole thing, as he addresses over and over again, is written to the people of the jury, the people he knows are going to judge him for what he's done. Well, or question, is that is that just another game he's playing? Yeah. The question is maybe even larger, or the answer is maybe even larger. What does that matter? The crime has exactly. been done. The crime has exactly. been done. You've right. done it. Doesn't matter if you f- feel guilty about it now. I think it doesn't I think exonerate his, him in the least. Exactly. And I think his effort to get her to come with him is his own neediness. Again, it's his way of yes. His his way of begging her to prove that he was that she does not see him as she sees Claire Quilty as an abuser. 
that she, he wants to know that she was in love with him. And of course she wasn't right. That's the thing that comes out in that. That's what breaks him right there at the yeah, end Absolutely, is that he is aware that she did not reciprocate what he perceived as being love. And that's what drives him. The only thing he has after that, that he can't get from her, if he can't get that affirmation or forgiveness from her is the only thing he has is he can go and defend her by killing Claire Quill. Right. And again, is that really defending her or is that simply him trying to, in some way or another, I don't know, destroy the, this horrific monster that is he himself, you know, he shoots the doppelganger because the doppelganger is him. Well, he doesn't kill Claire Quilty and then kill himself. No. So he still wants to believe that he can kill off that doppelganger while his good intellectual, linguistically talented self can endure. But really what he's trying to preserve is an image of himself as having good intentions. You know, one of the things here that we could almost look at where all this is concerned is also the whole the dark humor and the farcical nature of the murder scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's so bad at it. And they have this pathetic two middle-aged guys who can't do anything, struggle over the small caliber gun. And he finally right. is able to use it. And then when he goes downtown and can, or downstairs and confesses to the room full of house guests coming over for a party, what he's done, they all take it as a bad joke. Right. And it's only when the dying quilty comes crawling out on the stair landing, they start taking it seriously. And that may be honestly the best scene in the Kubrick movie in my mind, because, oh, you know, Peter, Peter Sellers portraying Claire Quilty brings a sort of physical absurdity to that yeah. performance. You know, Frank Langella in the 97 movie, I think the difficulty with the 97 movie is they wanted to go in and make a more uh, faithful adaptation of the novel than, than the 62 film, and that they wanted to confront the pedophilic aspect a little more. But, uh, you know, they don't quite capture the surrealness of Nabokov's novel. It's a little, the Adrian Lyne version comes off a little too soft porny. And again, Mm. I think if you look at that era in which it's made, I mean, that's a guy that was kind of, all his movies were, had kind of elements of, you know, nudity and quasi, Mm. you know, sort of titillating elements in them. Fatal Obsession had been one of his movies. Uh. And, you know, I think that they just really ended up making a movie that was sterile in that it did not have the humor that is in the book that may be unfilmable, but it just comes off as queasy to watch. It feels like a justification rather than a critique of that sort of longing for that that image of the ingenue. That's maybe the... Go ahead. They bought into the bad readings. Yeah. And that's maybe the best way to say this is that the, what, the way that Lolita has been misread is as an image of the ingenue. Right. As opposed to the rape victim. Right. And so are we to read of this a little bit allegorically? I, I think we've really addressed this, but is in some way or another, this is about the specter of European culture trying to take American innocence and despoil it. That to me seems too remote. And I know some critics have read it that way. To me, it is a much yeah. more, it's a book about a person. It's about Dolores Hayes, a 
12 and 13 year old girl who's treated abominably by this monster. I think that's one of the angles you can certainly take. I do think it's maybe a little, it's, it is a little too allegorical. I mean, the, the biggest struggle we have here is to what degree do we allow ourselves in an age where we are sensitive to the exploitation or the trafficking of women and, you know, where men really need to do have a reconciling with their notions of female sexuality and their absolute lack of rights or possessiveness over it. To what degree in an age in which we're all aware of those issues, are we willing to say it's okay to read it allegorically? Right. I mean, to what degree do we need to read this literally as a rape story? Yeah. And that there's no answer to that. No. Although I think Nabokov is probably, Nabokov is probably disappointed that more people didn't read it that way. And yeah. he, he was angered, we know, it, um, from some editions of the book and the movie posters, all sexualized right. and aged Dolores into yeah. this older. And his wife, Vera, often spoke out about how disappointed she was that critics did not seem to recognize that Lolita's voice in the novel is taken away from her. So we never get her side of the story. Now, there right. have been there have been attempts on the part of women writers mainly to come back and tell retell the story from the perspective of Dolores Hayes herself. And what's interesting is the Nabokov estate Dimitri, the son, got in a very famous, I think, a lawsuit with a with an author in the late 90s who was trying to publish a novel. And they got in a long contested legal battle and he forced some revisions on her in order to preserve the family copyright, I think. So there's 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 all kinds of sort of legalities about it. Um, there are theatrical adaptations of the novel too, and Jamie Loftus goes over several of these, including a musical in the seventies. Yes, which is when you hear some of now she takes it as a total absurdity, but there was a revival of it in 2019 that I think was a fairly genuine attempt at recon- you know salvaging that project it was j j l n lerner it was supposed to be his broadway comeback after mm. many years after camelot and it had music by john barry that did the james bond uh theme right the line that loftus quotes over and over again to sort of dramatize the absurdity of making a musical about child rape is there's a line about Humbert Humbert about who's that viper that likes them post diaper. And you just realize there's a sort of inanity in attempting to bring the frivolity of a musical to this very subject matter. Well, and that's the problem is if you're going to do a musical over something like this, it can't be like all the other musicals. It can't be upbeat dance numbers. So it's got to be you know, you could do it if you used mournful, I don't know, horror movie music and yeah, mournful music. I mean, but that's, that's not, not what, where people. That's not, and that's not what musicals are about. You know, no. musicals are about uplift and you know the rousing catharsis. I, you know, if I were a theater director and I were going to stage Lolita, this is what I would do. I would not have an actress on the stage. I would have a spotlit blank spot. Ah. where the audience is forced to project their own image on there. And I would just mention that another thing that Loftus does is she spends a lot of time talking about the psychological impact that portraying Lolita has on teenage actresses, even if they are not 12 years old, even if they're 15 15 or 16. 16. 
Well, and, and doesn't the producer start going out with Sue Lyon? The producer, James Harris, rapes her, who was Kubrick's partner. He essentially rapes her at mm. 14. And, and Sue Lyon struggled with the, the burden of having been Lolita her entire life to the point where when the 97 movie came out and she was all of uh, early 50s, she, she denounced it and said, why put a young woman through the torture of having to carry the burden of this imagery. Oh, so here we are then with all that's gone on and all the representations. And of course, we can't judge the book because people have read it wrong in some ways. But let's talk through our criteria to see how it fits as a great American novel. Is it American enough? Written by an expatriate, but he does become a naturalized American. It's absolutely American enough. I mean, yeah. it it really takes on the subject of America at a very important, specific time. As I mentioned before, it can be read as a novel of manners in right. in the sections, both in Ramdale and then in the other city where they settle down, whose name totally escapes me right at the moment. Near to Beardsley College. Right? Yeah. Uh, an yeah. allusion to Audrey. Beard, Aubrey Beardsley, by the way, yeah. the decadent, decadent poet. Right. So it is American enough. And the very the very notion of the road trip, as we mentioned, and the motel culture, right. uh, the representation of teen culture at that time. So it, it's definitely American enough. And does it have sufficient heft and scope and depth? I think you could argue if we're still doing podcasts about it here, almost 60 years after it's some more than that, uh, yeah. 65 years, whatever, since the book came out. It definitely has some durability. It definitely has heft and scope and depth. And it's clearly a significant artistic accomplishment. The, the real question we end with is a question we started with. Does the horrific nature of the content and the fact that so many presumably pretty intelligent people, Lionel Trilling being a good example, Stanley Kubrick, we're not capable of reading it properly. Right. And read it read it wrong. I think in the wrong hands it's a dangerous book and maybe that's what makes it even greater as an as a piece of art. I think like any book about a sensitive subject matter like this, it takes uh, it takes a facilitator an interlocutor to sort of be able to present audiences with the reception history and the way that it has passed through different decades and been used in different ways in order to promote images that are probably antithetical to to the message of the book. I think the very fact that in the last four or five years, we've had tremendous discussions about Lolita. There was just an, a, a great collection that came out last fall called The Afterlife of Lolita ah. and a wonderful collection of essays by very different uh, people, none of whom are condemning the novel, but mm. they are talking, talking about the interpretive dangers of it. Which I think is probably exactly what we need. And there are always certain books where my response is, Yes, it's great, but you really need to have someone help you in the way it was written to be read. Yeah. I would say as a as a male teacher that I would again not teach the book in this day and age. Uh if you know, if I had a student come to me and say, Are you scared to teach this book? I would say I'm maybe not scared of it, but I want to be sensitive to women in the classroom who maybe don't want to read a novel about right. 
child right. rape. Right. And I would say, yes, I am scared for the reasons hmm. you just mentioned. Yeah. So I think we're agreed. Uh, maybe I'm a little more begrudging out of that fear to give it. But I think I think you're right, Kirk. It is a great American novel and it is worthy of serious examination by people who take their time and read it the way it was written to be read. Great American novel, but not a love story. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's maybe uh, that should be the cut line on the yeah. uh, on the the blurbs on them. Yep. So our cannon fodder for this week. I just evolved this on the fly as we were talking when another book occurred to me. So the book I wanted to talk about and still will for just briefly is The Last Life by Claire Massoud. Massoud, yeah. uh, although raised partly abroad, she her family. Um, she has an American mother and I think maybe a French father. I'm not sure, but she lived, she lived all over the world before moving back to the States. Her husband is a famous critic, James Wood. And The Last Life, published in 2000, I think is her second novel. And it's about a teenage girl in Algeria and how this family that is trying to kind of maintain a hold on the ending days of colonial Algeria, last hold of you know colonialism, how it all kind of comes falling apart. Um, and this girl is a young woman who's trying to make her way into adulthood and kind of trying to figure out who she can trust, who she can't trust, what it is. It's a beautifully written LJIC novel that everyone should read. But here's the other canon fodder book that occurred to me halfway through the episode and that's True Grit by Charles Portis. There you go. Great. And the reason is, is that now it's problematical in a way to reference this to Lolita because it's a man telling a story of a teenage girl. But there we have a 14-year-old girl whose father has been murdered, and she sets out to bring the the man in who did it. And all, she gets the, the notorious rooster Cogburn to right. help her, played memorably yeah, both film adaptations are very good. The original one with John Wayne back in 68, 68. or 69, the more recent one by the Coen brothers with Jeff Bridges. They're both excellent. I would say the Coen brothers film is a bit closer to the novel yeah. in most ways. And they said they weren't trying to remake the old movie. They're trying to do a closer adaptation to the novel. But there you have a character who absolutely refuses to step back or let anyone call the shots for her including older, more experienced men. She is one way or the other going to be the person determining what she's going to do. Right. Both great books. Could I, could I offer two as well? Absolutely. So I, I would recommend that folks read Lolita alongside two books that are often invoked as contrast to them. One beforehand, which is James M. Cain's The Butterfly, oh, which yeah. is a novel about a, an older man sexu becomes sexually obsessed and attempts to control the the sexuality of of a of a pre-adolescent pre a tween but also 10 12 years ago there was a a fantastic novel by a, a woman named Allison Nutting called Tampa which is a treatment of in which the the rapist is a female teacher in other words it's kind of a Mary Kay Letourneau type ah. story. And the idea here is that the adult is the predator and the young man, the, the victim. And I think it's a really fascinating sort of, um, you know, obverse 
to Lolita. It definitely right. has a lot of Lolita echoes into it. And of course, it addresses what, what we see occasionally pop up. It seemed to have seemed to have been particularly prevalent in the late 90s, which uh, in early 2000s were, were all these sensational stories of, of female high school teachers having sex with their male students. Yeah. And and you get the feeling that it's been around longer than people want to talk about it, but it was never seen as particularly transgressive. Yeah, exactly. You go, back, I mean, you go back to a streetcar named Desire by Tennessee Williams. That's, yeah. That's yeah. kind of was uh, the fall from grace for, uh, for Blanche Dubois. It's always been kind of romanticized, I think. And uh, you could, I, I, you might remember in the early seventies, there was a very sentimental movie called summer of 42. And the oh, whole premise yeah. was the young man would lose his virginity to a divorcee. Yeah. And the idea that an older woman can sexually initiate and teach. I mean, the question the, that these the novels ask right? is, yeah. yeah, the question that these novels ask is, is there really any moral difference? And again, legally, we have to say no, you right. know, statutory rape is statutory rape. Right. And and it says something weird about culture that one at one point becomes seen as more transgressive than the other. And then we have to go back and re-examine it. We're always yeah. having to look at how our cultural mores evolve and change. And they keep putting lenses over people's eyes. Now we see this stuff. Um, and it, it, it just boils down to the fact that as I've made this point again, that American popular culture is very immature about sex. Yeah, for sure. Our next book is My Antonia by Willa Cather. I love that book so much. It's uh, and here's one interesting thing about it. It may be the greatest novel about a platonic relationship between a man and a woman. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. There's a lot to talk about in terms of what that platonic relationship really is, too, as we yeah. as we get into it. So I'm looking forward to it. Well, thank you for listening to the Great American Novel Podcast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. And we would appreciate it if you're so inclined, please leave us a favorable review. If you enjoyed this podcast, you may enjoy others such as Master of the Forty with Kirk and Robert Trogdon, focusing on the short stories of F. Scott Fitzgerald, and Rita McCarthy with myself and various guests about the works of Cormac McCarthy. And you can also email us at greatamericannovelpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks for listening.